welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. Amen. Well, hey, good morning again. And today we celebrate Pentecost Sunday, one of my favorite days in the entire church year. And and here at the Vine, we follow something called the church calendar. And what this is, this is a tool to help us anchor our lives in the story of God and to let that be the story that forms us, not the latest TV script, not the latest pop song, not the latest George Martin book, uh, but the story of God. And I'm just so thankful for this practice, in part because although I grew up in the church, uh, it was a background in which uh, we did not follow the calendar. And so I don't, as far as I can remember, in my entire experience growing up in the church, I don't recall hearing a single sermon or teaching on Pentecost or on the Holy Spirit. And so I'm just so thankful uh, that we have this practice because we, we every year we get to celebrate and remember Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. Now, Usually on Pentecost Sunday, I preach on Acts chapter 2, and we explore what happened on the day of Pentecost. But today, I want to do something just a little bit different, and I want to sort of hit the rewind button. And I want to really look at what the disciples were doing to prepare themselves for Pentecost, because they were up to something, and it's very important. Because in every subsequent move of God throughout church history, we see that there's sort of the same pattern that we see in the first chapters of Acts. And we'll look at that in a moment. What we see is is that this was preceded by a group of people who were seeking God's face. They were seeking God's face. And so we're going to talk today about seeking God's face, what that means, and how we can do it. But first, let me say just a little something about what happened on the day of Pentecost and how that relates to our lives. So just prior to Jesus' ascension, we talked about that last week. And so if you weren't here, I encourage you to listen online. But just prior to Jesus' ascension, he told his disciples, he said, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, referring to the Holy Spirit. But he says, stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now, why did the disciples need to be clothed with power from on high? Well, because they've just been given a big mission, an impossible mission, sort of a mission impossible, if you will, from a merely human perspective. And what this is, is is what's known as the Great Commission. And what that is, is the call to make disciples of all peoples, or in the words of Acts chapter 1, they're called to be Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that, of course, is a big mission, an impossible mission from a merely human vantage point. And so, therefore, Jesus says, wait, because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and he is going to help you in this task. We'll fast forward on the day of Pentecost, which, by the way, is actually a pre-existing Jewish feast. And so there are pilgrims, Jewish people from all over the world, gathered in Jerusalem on this day. And, and on the day of this celebration, we are told that the disciples were gathered together and the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them in great power. 
And as we just read, there are miraculous signs that accompanied this. Uh, there's a sound of great wind that filled the house where they were. There are the tongues of fire that come down and rest upon them. And we read that the disciples are enabled to speak in all sorts of different languages. So um, imagine this. Imagine you're in downtown Fullerton. Uh, let's say it's the farmer's market. Lots of people there. And there's a group of people gathered together, but they're not from around here. They are from, let's say, the backwoods of Appalachia. They speak with a twang. So this is kind of how people saw Galileans. This was kind of the backwoods. And then all of a sudden, something happens, and they begin speaking. Some are speaking fluent French. Some are speaking fluent Farsi. Some begin speaking in fluent Mandarin. Some maybe are even speaking Gaelic. You're like, what is going on here? Like, what is going on here? And everyone hears them from, all, you know, people from all over the world hear them. That's kind of what happened here on Pentecost. So as you can imagine, a crowd gathered, and the Apostle Peter, who, remember, he denied Christ very publicly three times, not long before this. But when the Spirit of God comes upon him, he is transformed, and he is filled with boldness, and he stands up and gives his first sermon. And people are so impacted that, get this, 3,000 people come to faith and are baptized like that. Not a bad first sermon. I take that. Not a bad first sermon, right? (laughs) Now, there are some things that happen on the day of Pentecost that are historically unique and therefore unrepeatable. For example, the church was birthed. And so uh, this is often thought of as the birthday of the church. And so that, of course, is a one-time thing. Another example, uh, the day of Pentecost also inaugurated what we might refer to as a new era in the history of salvation. So, for example, Peter refers to the prophecy of Joel about the Spirit of God being poured out on all people. And Peter is saying, look, that just happened in your very sight, that this prophecy was fulfilled. And Joel said that in the last days, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Not just King David, in other words, not just Elijah, not just prophets, but on all people, men, women, young, old, all people. And so he's saying, therefore, the last days have just begun. So this is sort of a new era that is ushered in, in the history of God's salvation. Now, I don't have time to unpack that, but my point here is simply to illustrate that there are certain things that happened on the day of Pentecost that are historically unique and therefore unrepeatable. However, on the other hand, there are some things that occurred on Pentecost that are not historically unique and therefore can happen again and again and again. And that's what we're going to explore today. And if you actually read through the book of Acts you will, and read throughout church history, you will actually see that there's a series of many Pentecosts over and over and over. So for example, the next one is in Acts chapter 4. Persecution breaks out against the church, and as you can imagine, the disciples, they are concerned. And so what do they do? They seek God. They pray. They pray for boldness. They pray for God to work in miraculous ways. And guess what? It happens. The Spirit of God is poured out afresh. They're filled with boldness. Lives are changed. See, again, we see this many Pentecost throughout Acts, throughout church history, many times. And, and, and uh, if you study this, what you'll see is there's actually a pattern. There's actually a pattern. First, there's a crisis, for example, persecution. Then there's a profound seeking of God by the people of God. And then finally, there is what we might call, there's different language, an outpouring of the Spirit, revival, renewal, awakening. There's different language, all referring to the same reality, okay? Now, I want to just briefly revisit something I shared a few months ago, and it's this conviction I have that what we need 
more than anything else in our culture at this moment is revival. And I don't care what language you use, renewal, awakening, whatever language you want to use with that. I'm, I'm fine with that. And I could talk with this about this for a long time, but just, I mean, think about our culture. I mean, it is just falling apart in so many ways. Now, on the surface, you might think, well, you know, the stock market's doing pretty well. I mean, it looks good to me. Well, that's kind of like driving by a house and you think, oh, on the outside, that, that, looks like a, that looks like a great house. But little do you know on the inside, it's like all these termites are just eating away at the foundation. That's sort of like what's happening uh, in our culture. It is, it is just at risk of falling apart. And, and uh, so that's just sort of an image of, of where I think we are. And this is sobering, but there are actually people way smarter than me who are arguing that we are now living at the beginning of the decline of Western civilization. Happy Sunday. <laughs> if you're just looking for a little pick-me-up, wrong Sunday, I'm sorry. Um, now, as dramatic as that may sound, I actually agree if there isn't a move of God. But what if there is? What if God were to pour out his spirit afresh upon this land? And what if God's call for the church in this moment is to arise in prayer and to seek his face like the church did in Acts 1, in Acts 4, and all throughout church history? Various key moments. I want to share a quick story because I know I shared some bad news. I want to temper this with some good news. I just read something by Tim Keller. I don't have time to share the whole story, but he was talking about how in the middle of the 18th century in both Britain and in France, there was tremendous social and economic inequality. Uh, And that was really the powder keg that led to the bloody revolution that happened in France. So you might wonder, and many have wondered, well, why didn't the same thing happen in Britain? Same conditions. In one case, there's this bloody revolution. In the other case, there wasn't. What happened? You know what the answer is, actually? A great awakening occurred in the British Isles. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that transformed society, led by people like John and Charles Wesley. And, 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 and hear this. Something like around a fifth of the people in the British Isles came to faith during that moment like really came to faith, like prostitution, like went out of business. Like, I mean, amazing things happened. And the people who came to faith in that awakening, these were the people that led to the abolition, abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire. I could go on and on about the fruit of this revival. It's just astounding. But so that leads me to pray with Isaiah and Isaiah 46, 1, when he said, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and do it again. That is my prayer. And that's really kind of the heartbeat behind what I want to share with you today about this need for revival. And just maybe one, just quick, a couple quick things on this. So again, to give you a sense, because I, I, again, depending on, I don't know, um, your your situation, you might not be in tune with this, but I just came across some uh, staggering uh, statistics. One is from a really solid Christian think tank, extremely solid. Uh, and, and they uh, concluded that there are roughly a million young people leaving the church in this nation every year. Every year. And so for me, it's like, how could our hearts not break over that? How could we just do business as usual in light of that? I mean, these are our friends. These are our kids. These are our neighbors. How could we not rise up in prayer and seek God's face? Uh, man. Another statistic. This is uh, coming out of the University of Illinois, as I recall. And, and they found, and this is like just shocking, that there are now more people in this nation who have no religious affiliation 
than there are evangelicals or Catholics for the first time in, in American history since they started keeping track of this kind of thing. I mean, that is, that is wild. This is happening way faster. This slide into secularism happening way faster than anyone expected. And so I believe that God's call for us as a congregation and as the church more broadly is to seek his face in general, but even more specifically for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our midst, in our lives, in this land. And I don't really care what that looks like. That can look dramatic as it did in the revival in the Hebrides off the Scottish uh, coast, as I shared about a couple months ago. That can look very quiet, like the Benedictine renewal. This can look all sorts of different ways. I, 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 have, I, I don't care what that looks like. All I care is that people encounter God, that lives are changed, that society is transformed, and that Christ is lifted high. That is the fruit of, of true revival, of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon a people. That is really the point. Now, I spoke about this a few months ago. Since then, this is fascinating. I have, just through conversations or listening to podcasts, I have, have, have heard six of the pre- preachers and pastors I most look up to on this planet say the exact same thing, independently. And for me, that's just like, whoa. That tells me that the Holy Spirit is singing a song over the church in this time, saying, I want you to seek me. I want to pour out my spirit. Will you seek me? through prayer. And I really believe this is something that is going to happen. I don't know when, but I believe it's going to happen. So the question is, how do you get ready? How do you prepare? Well, how did the early church do it? That's what I want to talk about. So one just quick clarification. So we can't make uh, God pour out his spirit. Uh, Only Jesus can do that. But think of it like this. Think if like there's a helicopter that wants to land. What you can do, you can't make it land, but what you can do is you can prepare the way you can remove obstacles to that helicopter landing. You can remove, maybe there's wreckage or debris or like a tree that fell over that's blocking the path for where it wants to land. And what we can do is prepare the way. So how, again, how did they prepare the way in the early church? Well, in Acts chapter two, verse one, it says, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Beautiful image, but what were they doing? Here's the basic idea I want to put before you. They were seeking the face of God. They were seeking the face of God. Luke 24, 53 says, they stayed continually at the temple praising God. But not only that, Acts 1, 14 says, they all joined together constantly in prayer. Now we'll come back to those scriptures at the end, but, but I actually, I want to think about what the early church was doing and what all of the Christians have done since who really prepared themselves for revival through this lens of seeking the face of, of God. And so I want to look at some Old Testament scriptures just to kind of give us a backdrop, and then we'll come back at the end to the book of Acts and what happened there. So let's just kind of zoom out for a moment and think about this idea of seeking the face of God. Now, if you were to do a kind of a look up in like BibleGateway.com and, and, and type in seeking God's face or seek his face, you would see all sorts of references throughout scripture. So this is really a call that is central for God's people to seek his face. And actually, in, in some verses, this is tied explicitly to renewal. So, for example, famous verse, 2 Chronicles seven fourteen, it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and what? seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now, notice that central to this promise is this call to seek God's face. And and again, if you were to search throughout scripture, you would find this phrase over and over and over again. 
For example, another example, when the ark of the Lord is brought into Jerusalem, King David, uh, he, he called the people to worship and with, with these words, Psalm 105, verse 4, look to the Lord and his strength, seek his face, sometimes, no, always, seek his face, always. So that tells us that this is central to the Christian life. It's so important. Now, uh, in a moment, we'll look at some other scriptures that have this language, but again, central is this call to seek God's face. But, but what does that mean? Now, if you grew up in the church like, oh, seek God's face, cool. Okay, let's move on. But if you didn't grow up in the church, uh, I understand that this is actually kind of weird language, right? So we don't normally talk like that. So what does that actually mean to seek the face of God? Let's talk about this. Well, what this is, this is what we might call presence language. This is talking about presence, personal presence. So for example, in Genesis chapter 32, verse 30, uh, it says that Jacob saw God, quote, face to face. Uh, here's just, and what this is really, this is, a, this is kind of an image of, of intimacy, of presence. So I'll share a story to illustrate. So I don't know, a month or so ago, one of our new moms here uh, brought her new little baby girl to church. And she, when she came up for communion, she had her little beautiful baby girl with her. And I was just so awestruck that after I served her mom communion, I just kind of knelt down and looked in this baby's precious little eyes. And I was just filled with so much joy. And I just, I said, I bless you in Jesus' name. It's like somehow she could sense or feel my joy in her and she just belly laughed. But it was like this moment of like connection and intimacy. It was like this beautiful time. And so that's just, that's an image of kind of the one face close and looking into the eyes of the other. It's this, again, image of intimacy, uh, of presence. But here's, think, another scenario. So if you've ever had kids, you, you probably had this experience where, you know, let's say your, your child, let's say a newborn is in the bassinet, but you've also got life to do. And so you're maybe on the couch, you know, trying to catch up on email, but your newborn is in the bassinet. And maybe, let's say, uh, the, your, your child cannot see you. Maybe he's looking around for you, but cannot see you. And you're over here and you're working on email and you're focused on that. That's an image of where there's presence, but it's at a different level. It's le- there's less presence, if you will. There's less intimacy, right? And so that just gives us uh, this, this kind of an illustration um, that there can be different levels of intimacy between two persons. There can be different levels uh, of presence, okay? And so face-to-face kind of intimacy, that, again, that's this image of presence and, and, and tremendous intimacy. I came across a great line from a commentator. He said, what the child of God wants is to live with his father's full and open face smiling upon him. Isn't that great? But just to sum this up, to seek God's face is to seek, therefore, his presence, is to seek intimacy with him. Now, when we talk about seeking God's face and seeking God's presence, there are really two dimensions to this. There is what we might call the awareness side. We sang about that a moment ago. Let us become more aware of your presence. And there's also, however, the reality side. What do I mean? So when we talk about seeking God's presence, sometimes people get confused because they think, wait a minute, isn't God already everywhere? And that's a great question. And the answer is, in one sense, yes. Yet in another sense, maybe yes, maybe no. Let me explain. So theologians from very early in the life of the church have drawn some sort of distinction between the omnipresence of God and the manifest presence of God. The omnipresence of God 
in the manifest presence of God. And the idea of omnipresence is the idea that no matter where you go, God will be there. So David in Psalm 139, he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there, right? So again, omnipresence is this idea that no matter where you go, God is there. Whether you feel him, experience him or not, he is there. He is present. He is real. And so in light of this, when we struggle to perceive God's presence in our day-to-day lives, one of the key issues is awareness, right? So there's a saying in the Christian mystic, mystic literature that what's missing is awareness. And by the way, some people get scared with the word mystic. All a Christian mystic is, is someone who believes that when you talk to God, sometimes he talks back, okay? That's all that means. But one of the points in this tradition that uh, this tradition emphasizes is that the reason that many of us don't experience or feel the presence of God in our day-to-day lives isn't because he's absent. It's actually because we're absent. <laughs> we're on our phone. We're, we're watching TV. We're, we're caught up in just the noise and busyness and worries of urban digital life. And it's like our heart and mind is like con- disconnected or cut off from God, right? So in light of this, one of the main barriers between me and that kind of felt experience of the presence of God is awareness. And so what that means practically is I need to get off my phone. Uh, I need to change my habits. I need a rhythm of prayer. Uh, I need to cultivate uh, habits of noticing God at work in my life. Uh, I need to center myself on, on, on his reality, these sorts of things. So that's one side of this equation. That is all completely true. However, some people want to leave kind of the discussion right there, but there's actually more to this. Uh, there's an other side to this equation. Here's how we know that, that there's actually more to the story. So if the only issue uh, was awareness or lack thereof, then that doesn't explain several things. So think about this. First, it doesn't explain what, what Christian mystics call the dark night of the soul. So when you do all the right stuff, you calm your mind, you kind of get rid of distractions, you're really seeking to follow God you present yourself to him, but you feel far more of God's absence than his presence. And in those situations, when God has led you into a dark night, that, is that, that, that sense of absence, that's actually not your fault. I don't have time to explain all the ins and outs of that. Um, but what that tells us, it's, this is not just an awareness issue. Also, if, if awareness is the only issue that doesn't explain where there are moments when we pray and someone is healed, and there are other moments when we pray the exact same kind of prayers with the exact same level of faith, and someone isn't healed, right? So that tells us there's something more at work here that doesn't explain uh, why sometimes when we're worshiping, you just sense God's presence. And other times we're doing everything the same, and sometimes you don't, right? So one level is, or one issue is awareness, but there's this other issue of what I just am summarizing by calling reality. So when we're seeking God's face, we're not only seeking to become more aware of his omnipresence, we are also seeking God to manifest his special presence with us, to sort of intensify his presence, or in the language of this verse, for God to turn his face toward us, okay? The awareness side, the reality side. So for example, let me illustrate. Sometimes I'm physically present with my wife. We're sitting at the dinner table, let's say, but I am absent. Like I am not manifesting my presence emotionally, relationally. I don't know where I am. I'm thinking about work or something else, but I am not if you will, manifesting my presence. So there's this ability for us to be more or less present with others. And there's actually, God has an ability to be more or less, uh, you know, um, um, to to manifest his presence with us more or less, okay? 
and, and so again, often what is missing is awareness, yet there is also this idea that God can, can manifest his presence in a special way. So think about Pentecost. This is, a, this is a very dramatic illustration. But you know, the powerful wind from heaven that filled the house, the tongues of fire coming down, uh, the, 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 the believers being, being uh, anointed or filled with this ability to speak in other languages, being filled with boldness. So that wasn't that, as though that they simply became more aware of what was already happening. No, actually, God was doing something in particular in that moment. He was actually, to use geeky philosophical language, exerting causal influence in their lives. He was actually doing something in reality, okay? So that, that's the reality side. So just to sum this up, to seek God's face then includes uh, growing in awareness, our turning our face toward him, but it's also asking him through prayer that he would turn his face toward us. That's the reality side. Does that make sense? Clear as mud. Okay. <laughs> okay, so that's what it means to seek God's face. It's to seek his presence. It's to seek intimacy with him. It's growing in our awareness of him, but also asking him to do things, to, to pour out his spirit, to, to, uh, to fill us with his love, these sorts of things. But let's talk for a minute just about this idea of seeking. So as we saw in Second Chronicles seven fourteen, it says, seek my face. Uh, Psalm 105, verse 4, here's another example. It says, look to the Lord in his strength, seek his face always. Now, the Hebrew word here for seek could also be translated as to search for or to look for or to ask for or to call on or to find or to discover or to demand or to possess or to want or, my personal favorite, to pursue. To pursue. And and this word is used not just here, but all through the Psalms and all through the library of Scripture. Another example, Psalm 27, starting verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord... This only do I, what? Seek, chase after, go for, pursue, that I may dwell. In other words, this is what I really want. In the house of the Lord, all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Skipping down to verse seven. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek came across a, a great quote on this uh, from N.T. Wright. I'll, I'll read it to you. He says, isn't this strange? Isn't God always available? Why do we have to work hard at looking for him? God is gracious and longs to be found by people of all sorts and at all times. But God does not put himself about as a mere item of curiosity, a show for the spiritual tourists, so that anyone can pop in and glance at him, shrug their shoulders and walk away. You have to want to go looking for him so that when you find him, you know you're in his presence. It's a thing of awe and joy and wonder, a demanding and challenging, but also a warming and healing presence that gives you the strength you need. Now, related to this, I want to point out something. Many people today, even in the church, have what I would call basically a pagan view of God. Uh, Basically, it's the idea that, you know, if I do X for God then he'll do wife for me. Kind of a quid pro quo sort of spirituality. But in that scenario, notice that, that seeking God under that scenario is actually treating him as a mere means to an end of what I really want, what I really value, what I really cherish, which is something other than him. But David's heart in this psalm, I want you to notice this, is that he is seeking God for God's sake not as a mere means to an end. So for example, when I was a college freshman, I first started exploring Christianity, 
the, if I'm honest, the initial reason I went to this Christian student meeting was because I knew there's some cute girls there. I'm thinking, you know, maybe if I dabble with, with Christianity, maybe, you know, God will, you know, kind of give me a little nod and, you know, hook me up with a, with an amazing Christian girl. And, uh, but you know, I don't have to change my life. I'll just kind of, you know, put one toe in the water and, well, actually funny story. Uh, I had a, 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 a guy living next door to me in the dorms. He wasn't even a Christian, but when he found out that was my MO, <laughs> he like rebuked me. He wasn't even a Christian. He's like, hey, that's not why you're supposed to go. I'm like, really? It's like, no, you're supposed to go for God. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> so I eventually learned. Oh, my goodness. Anyways, so in other, so, we're, we're, so seeking biblically, seeking God, seeking God. So it's about seeking God for God's sake. It's not about just trying to use him to get whatever we want. It's about seeking him, okay? Now, another thing to see about seeking God's face, and I want you to see is that this is a passionate pursuit. Psalm 63, verse 1. says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. In other words, earnestly, with passion, with intensity, with, with desire, sort of in the marrow of my bones, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. Now, this was written by someone living in a desert, a Middle Eastern Jewish man living in a desert. So just imagine that sense of thirst. When you can't just wherever you turn, there's not like everywhere you turn, there's a bottle of water or a faucet you can turn on. There's this, this sense of thirst. Well, this is the same language used by the prophet Jeremiah. And this is God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me, there's the word, and find me, notice, when you seek me with what? All your heart. Not a little bit of your heart. Not just some of your heart. Not just like a little corner of your heart. But all of it. Verse 14, I will be found by you declares the Lord. Now, there are just so many scriptures uh, in the Bible that say this, the exact same thing, to seek God's face. Here's just one quick New Testament reference. Matthew 6, 33, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Now, that's a, just a small sampling of, of the many passages like this, but notice that in every single one we've looked at, that seeking God's face is actually, it's a command, that this is a command. And therefore, this is central to the Christian life. I want to share a couple uh, quotes um, that just really make this point. So the first is from Dallas Willard. If you don't know who Dallas was, he was a professor of philosophy at USC. My wife had the amazing privilege of studying with him. He, he tremendously brilliant man. But not only was he a brilliant philosopher and have a brilliant mind, he was also a man after God's own heart. And he was just one of the great Christian leaders of the past 50 years. And so this is from a chapter in the book, Deeper Experiences, of famous Christians, and, and, and he's asked to sort of write how he was impacted by reading about the experiences of, of Christians who came before him, and this is what he writes. He said, I had been raised in religious circles of very fine people where the emphasis had been exclusively on faithfulness to right beliefs and upon bringing others to profess those beliefs. Now that, of course, he says, is of central importance. But when that alone is emphasized, the result is a dry and powerless religious life. No matter how sincere one and constantly vulnerable to temptations of all kinds. Therefore, he says, to see actual invasions of human life, 
by the presence and action of God right up into the 20th century greatly encouraged me to believe that the life and promises given in the person of Christ and in Scripture were meant for us today. By the way, one of the things I love to do is to listen or read stories of others, how God has been at work in their life. So encouraging. But Dallas goes on to say, I saw that ordinary individuals who sought the Lord would find him real. Actually, they, that he would come to them and convey his reality. So that's sort of the reality side we were talking about. He continues, it was clear that these famous Christians were not seeking experiences. They were seeking the Lord, his kingdom, and his holiness. Seeking was clear from the lives portrayed a major part of life in Christ. The doctrinal correctness view alone view of Christianity was in practice, hear this, one of non-seeking. It was basically one of having arrived, not of continual seeking. And the next essential stop on its path was heaven after death. And he goes on to say, but in light of these famous Christians, it became clear to me that the path of constant seeking as portrayed in the Bible, for example, Philippians 3, Colossians 3, 2 Peter 1, that was the life of faith intended for us by God. He goes on to say, salvation by grace through faith was a life, not just an outcome. And the earnest and unrelenting pursuit of God, I love that phrase, the earnest and unrelenting pursuit of God was not work salvation, but the natural expression of the faith in Christ, which saves. Constant discipleship with its constant seeking for more grace in life, and I would add more of the Holy Spirit, was the only sensible response to confidence in Jesus as the Messiah. And the natural accompaniment of that response would of course be intermittent, but not infrequent experiences of God. Some deeper, some not so deep. So do you hear, hear, hear his point that this seeking God, this is really central to the Christian life. One more quote on this. This is a little more brief. This was from A.W. Tozer's classic little book, The Pursuit of God. And this is from a paragraph in his opening chapter. And he writes, to have found God and still pursue him is the soul's paradox of love, scorned indeed by the too easily satisfied religionist, but justified in happy experience by the children of the burning heart. I love that language, by the way. And if I were to start a band, I think that'd be a pretty cool name. <laughs> children of the burning heart. But he continues, come near to the holy men and women of the past, and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him. They prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out. And when they had found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. He goes on, I want to deliberately encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Let me read that again. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people. He waits to be wanted. Listen to that. He waits to be wanted. Too bad, Tozer says, that with many of us, he waits so long, so very long in vain. Wow. I don't know about you, but that's, that, that's like, I don't know. That stirs something in me. That, that, that's really profound. Now, with all that in mind, I think we're able to better appreciate what was happening uh, 
in the days preceding Pentecost in Acts chapter 1, as they prepared, as the disciples prepared themselves for Pentecost. This was not a group of people who was, I don't know, primarily concerned about what was on their smartphone. Uh, they had that awareness. They were, they were growing in their awareness of God. They're seeking more of his presence in their lives. And it's clear they weren't just going through the motions. They weren't just kind of doing their prayers. They were seeking God. This is the backdrop for what we see here. Again, Luke 24 says, they stood continually at the temple praising God. Acts 1, they joined all together constantly in prayer. So again, this is really an image, an example of seeking uh, God's face. And just very briefly, as we wrap up, just three quick things I want to highlight just from Acts uh, that really, I think, are, are part of hallmarks uh, of the kind of seeking that has preceded moves of God throughout history. So just very briefly, we're running out of time. Um, but the first thing, that we see here in these passages is, is waiting, that the kind of seeking that is historically preceded revival uh, has as part of it waiting, waiting on God. Now, to be honest, that's not something I like to hear. Because I don't know about you, but I don't like to wait. I don't like to wait in line at Disneyland. I don't like to wait in line at the grocery store. I don't like to wait in traffic. And I don't like to wait on God for answers to prayer. But this is part of how he works. Uh, this, that Jesus actually tells the disciples to wait, that they are to wait in Jerusalem until he pours out the Spirit. Now, right after this, again, we see that they devoted themselves to prayer, to worship. And so one of the things that tells us is waiting in the Bible is not passive. It's not just kind of waiting, passing the time away. It's actually an active seeking. Waiting in the Bible is active seeking. Uh, and, and also we see, however, that, that this means that it takes time. Uh, one verse I'll share with you from Psalm 37. It says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And so how you wait matters. So sometimes it can be easy when you're waiting on God for something, to wait with anxiety, to wait with fear, to wait with worry. But the call is to wait patiently and with confidence in the goodness and power of God, knowing that we can trust him. And that is really our call. That is, that is our call. And so the first hallmark of the kind of waiting that has preceded these sorts of moves of God is it, it, it involves waiting. That's the first thing. Second, this kind of seeking involves persistence. Again, Luke 24 says they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Acts 1, they all joined together constantly in prayer. And, and so we see that this is, this is a persistent sort of seeking. It wasn't a one-off kind of thing. And actually, they had been waiting, in a sense, not only the 40 days between Christ's resurrection and his ascension, but also they waited an additional 10 days from the ascension to Pentecost. So they were waiting, and they were persistent for an extended period of time. And so I, I actually believe that God's question for many of us here today, because some of us have been waiting a while, but I believe that God's question for many of us here today is, will you keep seeking me? Will you keep seeking me? I know it's been a while, but will you keep seeking me and not give up? There's a pastor in New York City I highly respect, one of the great church planners of our day, uh, John Tyson. I recently heard him share something. He said, that he, he said that he believes that one of the things that we need in this moment in the church is sustained urgency in prayer, a sustained urgency. And I think that's really right, because it can be really easy to be urgent for an hour, for a day, maybe a week. But what would it look like if the church of God in this nation had a sustained urgency around prayer, around seeking God's face, around praying for a move of the Holy Spirit. What might happen? What might happen? So waiting, persistence, third thing, united seeking. Now, Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that there were actually 120 disciples gathered on Pentecost seeking God together. So this wasn't just, no, this wasn't just Peter seeking. This wasn't just Peter, James, and John. 
This wasn't just the 12. This was everyone together. There was a united seeking. And actually, if you study the history of revival, there's the sense of corporate seeking that has preceded moves of God throughout history. Acts 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. So, so important. Now, running out of time, so I'll just land this plane. Band, you can come back up. Uh, but just as I was praying about this sermon, just the phrase that kept coming to mind was, seek my face. Seek my face. And, and, and I believe that that's really, really God's call for us in, in this time, um, to seek his face in general, but also specifically for a fresh move of his spirit among us. And I know that it can be easy, especially if you've been following Jesus for a while, just to kind of go through the motions. But he is calling us to really press in and seek his face. Not just for ourselves, but for our city, for our church, for our generation. Now, just something practical I want to invite you into uh, in this season, just as a way we're pressing into this on Wednesday nights. This month, we're doing what we call Ask Wednesday. That's an acronym. It stands for Ask, Seek, and Knock. We're here from 6 to 8 p.m. We invite you just to show up whenever you can. You can come or go as you're able. But we're just praying. We're seeking God together. We invite you to join us. But let's, um, let's pray together. So Jesus, we thank you that you did not leave us alone. That you sent us the Comforter, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're with us. And I pray as we come to the table now uh, that you would intensify your presence with us, that we would encounter you not only through your word, but through the breaking of bread. And Lord, would you move among us? Would you, Jesus, would you pour out your spirit in even greater power in this time?